Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is eternal. It is precious. It is life-giving. As we uh, read it and hear your word preached this morning, we ask that your spirit would work in and through us all to illuminate the truth of the gospel, to glorify Christ, and to spur us on to live holy lives to your glory and to your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we heard an amazing truth. We heard a glorious truth. Our passage last week declared to us so wonderfully the truth that in Jesus Christ, we as rebellious, sinful men and women and boys and girls will one day, again, if we are looking to Christ in repentance and faith, we will one day live and rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the new creation. In Jesus Christ, God will accomplish his original intent for mankind. In Christ, we will glorify God, we will enjoy God forever, and in Christ, we will have dominion over the whole earth. We talked about how salvation in Jesus is really union with Christ. It's being united to Jesus in his uh, humiliation. That is that event where he freely gave up his heavenly riches, uh, came and was born in poverty, uh, lived under the law, lived life in a sinful fallen world. Uh, uh, he suffered. He suffered the accursed death on the cross. Uh, and it's even union with Christ in his burial, that short amount of time where for three days Christ was under the power of death. And then we talked about how salvation is also union with Christ in his exaltation, in his resurrection from the, from the dead, in his ascension back up into heaven where he sits right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it is union with Christ in his glorification. Actually, uh, the choir sang of that this morning uh, in their choral anthem. Uh, one of the lines in the first hymn that was part of that medley said, One day I will trade my cross for a crown. We will be glorified and reign with 
Christ. And if you remember, I told you two truths that my pastor back in Pennsylvania used to say. He used to say that we as Christians have an incredibly bright future ahead of us. And then he would say the good news is anyone can get in on this bright future. Last week's passage in the book of Hebrews was originally given to that first century church who desperately needed to hear that encouragement and hope. They were facing severe persecution. They were suffering. And the author of Hebrews has been reminding them in their suffering to not abandon Jesus Christ. Reminding them that Jesus is better. Charging them to not drift away from Christ. Keep their anchor firmly planted in the soil of the gospel. And the encouragement he gave that original audience and the encouragement that the author of Hebrews gave us is the great truth of this incredibly bright future that awaits all those who cling to Jesus. And our passage last week ended with this statement, this truth, that this incredibly bright future was only secured for us because Jesus Christ tasted death. Our passage this week picks up where we left off last week. Verse 9 last week told us that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor and our own glorification in the world to come is secure because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he, meaning Jesus, might taste death for all. And this is a mind-boggling truth. In order for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to save us, he had to suffer. And taste, and that is, partake of death. And we talked about this last week, in last week's sermon a little bit, that because Jesus Christ emptied himself of his heavenly riches, humbled himself, came and lived among us, suffered and died on the cross, because of this, he was able to secure our salvation. But I think for us, that idea might be a little too abstract at times. It might be even a bit paradoxical. Why did the eternal Son of God, I think many of us ask, why did the eternal Son of God have to take on the weakness of human flesh and do all that he did in his earthly life and death to secure our salvation? Why did it take Christ's humiliation to secure our own exaltation? The author of Hebrews tells us the answer to that in our passage this morning. Right away, He says Christ had to do what he did because it was, as verse 10 tells us, it was fitting. If humankind was going to be saved from their sins and restored to God, as God the Father had eternally decreed in eternity past, before the foundations of the world were laid, then God the Son, who was the Redeemer of God's people, in order to secure our salvation, had to become like us in every way. And that's what Jesus Christ did. That's the focus of our passage this morning. Look at verse 10 of our text. It says that in order to bring many sons to glory, so we talked about last week, in order to bring many sons to glory, the founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to be made perfect through suffering. Now what does that mean that Christ had to be made perfect? perfect through suffering. This is one of those verses, again, and I've pointed things out like this to you before, where cults like Mormonism, which believes that we can all become gods, 
they'll point to this verse and say, see, Jesus is not the eternal son of God. He's not the eternal God, but rather he was a man who through his suffering was made perfect and became a God. Mormons believe that we all can become gods. Well, that's simply not true. In fact, that's a damnable heresy. So what does it mean when the author of Hebrews says Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Well, it does not mean that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, who the author of Hebrews has already shown us earlier in this writing, is superior to all things in heaven and on earth. It does not mean that Christ somehow lacked something, that he had any flaw, that he was somehow imperfect in any sort of way. Rather, what it means is that Jesus, by, by Jesus Christ taking onto himself a true human nature, a true human body, a true human soul, Jesus became the God-man. And in becoming the God-man, truly God and truly man, 100% God and 100% man, Jesus Christ became perfectly equipped to become the founder, the author, and perfecter of our salvation. You see, in order for mankind to be saved, mankind needs a human savior. We need a man. We need a second Adam to do what the first Adam could not do. We need a second Adam to live the perfect life that the first Adam failed to live, that we failed to live. We need a man to keep every iota of God's holy law. And more than that, because we have sinned and rebelled against God, mankind needs a human sacrifice to atone for our sins. You know, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the bulls, the rams, the birds, none of them could atone for the sins of mankind. Only man can make atonement, can make payment for our sins. King David recognized that in the 51st Psalm. Psalm 51, the psalm where he is lamenting his affair. Uh, he says to God in his lamentation, you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give them. Hebrews is, is going to get into this a little more uh, get into this more a little later on in the book. But the point right now that I want us to see is the, a the animal sacrifices of the tabernacle and of the temple, they could never remove the guilt of our sin. They could never atone for the sins of mankind. And honestly, they were never intended to atone for our sins. Rather, what those Old Testament sacrifices were intended to do was to point God's people in the Old Testament towards the truth that one day a Messiah, a rescuer, would come, a pure and spotless Lamb of God who would indeed take away the sins of God's people. The sacrifices were intended to point the Old Testament believer towards Jesus Christ and what he would do. And when Jesus Christ took on to himself humanity, a true human nature, he became perfectly equipped. 
as a true man to atone for our sins. That's what the author of Hebrews means when he says that Christ was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect, perfectly equipped to be our Savior. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a Savior like us. In this way, the author of Hebrews can say that it is truly fitting that God would accomplish the salvation of his people by giving us a Savior who has identified with us, became like us in every way, yet without sin. Verse 11 emphasizes this idea all the more when the author of Hebrews says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now what does that word sanctify mean? That may be one of those words that as Christians we hear often. It might be part of what we call Christianese. It's a word uh, that's very common in the Christian world and for good reason, because as we see this morning, it's a biblical word. But I wonder if we ask people, what does the word sanctify mean? How many Christians might be able to give us the answer? We have these words and we're so familiar with them, but so often do we really think, what does that word truly mean? Sanctify simply means made holy, set apart for holy use. So when the author of Hebrews says, he who sanctifies or he who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, those who have been made holy, all have one source. What's he saying? He's saying that the one who makes people holy, which is Jesus Christ, and the ones who are sanctified, that's us. That's all of God's people. He's saying that we all have one source. And what is that source? Well, here in this passage, as the author is concerned with the human nature of Jesus Christ, The one source is Adam. What is being said here is that Jesus Christ, in taking onto himself a human nature, now shares in our origin. He shares in our pedigree. He shares in our race. He is part of the human race now. You see, the emphasis in verses 10 and 11 is the truth that Jesus has truly become man. And this is a glorious mystery. The eternal Son of God has now become truly man. In the one person of Jesus Christ, we have two complete natures. Jesus is 100% God. Yes, He is fully divine. He is the eternal Son of God. But He is now 100% man as well. And because He is truly man, He is able to save us from our sins. That's an amazing, mysterious, glorious truth. This is how much God loves us, brothers and sisters. That he would take on to himself a human nature. That he would become like us. That he, as the infinite God, would identify with his finite creatures in this way. You know, do you ever feel... Worthless. Do you ever wonder if God truly loves you? Well, then we need to look to Jesus Christ and wonder no more because God loves you so much that the Father would give His only begotten Son 
He loves you so much that the eternal Son would come and take on human flesh, suffer and die, that He would identify with us in such a way that He truly became like us. This is how much God loves His children, His people, that that Jesus would become truly man, that He is not ashamed to call us brother and sister, that He will, as verses 12 and 13 say, consider us to be part of His family. It's, it's incredibly profound and wonderful and truly amazing. And this is why later on in the book of Hebrews, the author will tell us we have a great high priest in Jesus who was able to sympathize with us Because Jesus Christ is now identified with us, become part of the human race, he can sympathize because he knows firsthand what it means to suffer in this world. He knows firsthand the weakness and the frailty of the human body. He knows firsthand what it means to be tempted to sin. He knows firsthand what it means to grieve and mourn at the death of a close loved one. He knows firsthand what it means to lose someone you love to death. He knows firsthand what it means to be hungry and thirsty. He knows what it means firsthand to be betrayed by his friends. He knows what it means to face death. And he knows what it means to die. This is why the hymn writer could say, what wondrous love is this, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. And again, in the same hymn, he would write, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. It is a wondrous love, brothers and sisters, that would lead the Lord of bliss to empty himself and become like us that would lead him to lay aside his crown for the redemption of our souls. Jesus Christ, by laying aside his crown for our souls, by becoming like us, became part of the human race. He became part of our genetic family, if you will, so that you and I can become part of his eternal family. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in verses 10 through 13. That's the point of these opening verses here. And the author continues to expound upon this theme in verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what we just talked about. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that by his death, by the death of his own flesh and blood, he could set us free from the power of our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Salvation has been accomplished through Christ's suffering. But then the author continues the author of Hebrews continues in verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. This is, this is so important. These are some of the most important verses, I think, in this chapter. For surely it is not 
angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. There are a few things I want us to see from these two verses. Notice first, it is not the angels that Christ helps. Another way of saying that is Christ did not become like the angels in order to save angels from their sin. If you remember back to our earlier sermon from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, the sermon which declared Christ to be greater or superior to the angels, we talked about common misconceptions that people have concerning angels. And one of the common misconceptions that we talked about is this idea that when people die, they become angels. And I said that that was patently false. Angels and humans are two different species. And when we die, our souls, still being human, ascend into heaven and are with Christ until the second coming, when Christ will return and resurrect our bodies and reunite our bodies and souls together, and we will have eternal life, as embodied souls, just as we were created, and we will reign with Christ in the new creation. We do not turn into angels. And here's the proof of that. Jesus Christ became like us. He became man in order to help or in order to redeem us, mankind. He did not become like the angels in order to redeem angelkind. And we must remember there are angels who are indeed in need of redemption. As you know, Satan himself was an angel. And his followers, those who rebelled with him in heaven against God, they too were angels. Satan and his demons are fallen angels. And it's not these who Christ redeems. The fallen angels, they are hopeless They have no forgiveness. They have no redemption. They have no savior. But Christ did become like us so that he could save us. And this tells us a great truth. It teaches us, it reminds us that God's plan of salvation is for mankind. It's for us. We, as the special act, of God's creation. We who were created in the image of God, we are the ones who are the objects of God's special saving grace. We are the ones who God loves so much that he gave his only begotten son. So these two verses first teach us that God's plan of salvation has always been intended to save fallen man, not the angels. But secondly, it tells us that God's plan of salvation, that Christ's redemption is not universal in its scope, in its nature. Look at the end of verse 16. The author says that Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. All this time we've been talking about how Jesus has become like us in every way, how he has identified with us in our humanity, how he has become a second Adam. And yet here, the author of Hebrews doesn't say that Jesus has come to help the offspring of Adam. He says 
that he came to offer to, to help the offspring of Abraham. What's the difference? Well, if he says that Jesus has come to redeem the offspring of Adam, that's everyone. That's the whole human race. That would be universalism. Everybody gets saved. But he says that Christ helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, who are the offspring of Abraham? Well, some might say that's the Jews. That uh, The offspring of Abraham is ethnic Israel. And they might use this verse to argue the point that the book of Hebrews is really written about God's continued plan for the nation of Israel. And they would say, see, this, this proves that the nation of Israel is still in a covenant with God, and the reason Jesus came was primarily to save the Jews. No, brothers and sisters, that is... Simply not true. Ethnic Jews, the, the nation of Israel as it exists today, really has nothing to do with what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from how the New Testament identifies and defines the offspring of Abraham. I invite you to take your Bibles right now and um, turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 28 and 29. Uh, while we're uh, turning there, let me give you a quick uh, background of the book of Galatians. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a primarily Gentile church. That means that this is a church made up of converts to Christianity who did not come from a Jewish background. Uh, they were Greeks. Actually, the region of Galatia was made up of early Celtic People, So uh, that might just be a point of interest for us as Scots-Irish Presbyterians today. But these were early Celtic people. And what was happening in the church of, of, of Galatia was false teachers were coming into the church. And they were saying that, yes, salvation is by faith in Christ. But in order for you to truly be a Christian, you must first convert to Judaism. And you have to observe all the Jewish festivals and feasts and ceremonial laws and primarily that men have to be circumcised. And so Paul is writing to this young church to basically say, don't listen to these people. That's a false gospel. And so that's the context in which Paul is writing Galatians 3. Now let's look at Galatians 3 starting in verse 28. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And verse 29, here's the key. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Or you could say heirs according to the covenant. So who is Abraham's offspring? Who is it that Jesus has come to redeem? Not the whole human race, not the ethnic, the Jewish people, the ethnic offspring of Abraham, but rather all who are in Christ. The offspring of Abraham, the children of Abraham, are all those who look to Jesus in faith, whether they are Jew or Gentile. If you look to Jesus in faith, then you are Christ. And if you belong to Christ, 
then you are, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.29, Abraham's offspring. And if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, then the promise of Hebrews 2.17 is for you. The promise is that Jesus has made propitiation for your sins. That's another big word, propitiation. It's one of those big theological words, and it should be a big word because it has a big meaning. That one word means atonement. It means that Jesus has paid for your sins, that he has taken the punishment you deserve, that he has appeased God's just and holy wrath, and that you are forgiven of all of your sins. If you are trusting in Christ, then you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And if you are Abraham's offspring, then you are Christ's brother or sister. And therefore, you have a Savior in Jesus, one who has become like you in every way, yet without sin, a Savior who has made propitiation for all of your sins. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in, t- in chapter 2, verses 10 through 17, this is an amazing Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me just close by looking briefly at verse 18. Verse 18 gives us a practical application to everything that we've just looked at this morning. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, this is a a wonderful hope for us as we face temptation day in and day out. Jesus knows. He's been tempted in every way. Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation and can sympathize with us because he became like us. And so when we are tempted with sin, the call here is for us to the, the hope is for us, it, it's to call out to Christ, to look to Christ. Jesus Christ, the high priest, who can sympathize with us because he too was tempted. He, he has not only set us free from the guilt of sin, but he has also set us free from the power of sin. This is why By the way, as a side note, I started including that response in our assurance of forgiveness passage. Believer in Jesus Christ, you are free from the guilt and power of sin and death. And we should respond to that by saying thanks be to God. Because sin no longer has power over us. And so when we are tempted, we can cry out to Jesus who hears us. He knows what it is that we are going through. He can sympathize with us. He's able to help us in our temptations. And more than that, He can and He will deliver us from our temptations. And that is a wonderful encouragement to us. It's a wonderful encouragement to know that as we face the temptations of sin day in and day out, we have a Savior who has, who can sympathize and who has promised to help us. And all of this works together, brothers and sisters. It works together with who Jesus is as the God man, 
the Savior of God's people. The promise that we have one who will help us in our temptation is a great hope. But it's also a great hope to know that if we do give in to temptation, and we know that we will give in to temptation, but if we do give in to temptation, we also have the promise that we have a Savior like us who has made propitiation, who has made atonement for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it's in and through Jesus Christ, the God-man, that the promise of our salvation is indeed secure.